see you guys. Hey, this morning we're going to uh, wrap up our, our series through the book of Acts. Like we, we start it and we stop it occasionally. We come back and forth. But we're going to take a little, little pause. We're going to finish up all the way through uh, Acts chapter 12. And then we're going to stop for a little bit. And then next week we're going to start a, a series called um, Everyday Disciples. You know, we have this kind of new slogan we put out here. We are everyday disciples. And we just want to talk about more of what that looks like. What does it mean for, for people... Uh, to really be disciples of Jesus Christ, like to be people who are, or are intentionally setting themselves uh, out to be the sorts of people who look and act and, and, are, and are filled with the Spirit. What does that look like? And what does it look like for you in your everyday life, your normal life? Not just on your Sunday morning routine, but your everyday life to be the sort of person who is an everyday disciple. And so we're just going to talk about that all uh, next week. Uh, so looking forward to that. Um, so again, we're going to finish up Acts chapter 12, and Acts chapter 12 is actually a very good place to stop, because at the end of Acts 12, in, in 12.24, Luke wraps up the narrative with these words. He says, the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. And that little phrase, or, or something very similar to it, is actually used a few times throughout Throughout Acts, um, an example is Acts 6 7 or Acts 19 20. Um, and what Luke, the writer of Acts, is doing is using, using a little literary device, a little way to signal to us and to his readers that this section, this kind of section of the narrative is complete. It's kind of just wrapping up. It's like a chapter break, honestly. Um, a way to, to kind of say that this was, this was one section of the narrative that makes sense together and it's breaking up. It's a kind of the loose ends are being tied up. And if you go back and you read Acts in one sitting, actually, especially like from 6 to 12, if you sit down and you read it, something becomes really clear. And that's that this last chapter, chapter 12, while interesting and while worth studying, um, it's not really central to the story. Uh, it, it, it's more of background information than foreground information. Now, I am aware that is about the most boring point a pastor can make, that the, the text that he's about to teach, it's not that important. <laughs> um, but I think it's worth saying, because what Luke is talking about here, the thing that he places and, and kind of knowingly places as background and not foreground is stuff about the persecution of the church by political and social forces. It's something important. It's something that he needs to cover. But it's really not central to the story. What Luke is saying is, sure, uh, persecution happens. And I mean, that's a, that's a regular theme in the book of Acts. There's persecution. There's political opposition. There's organized opposition against the church. Persecution happens. But the story of the book of Acts, the story of the Bible, the story that we're reading about is actually the story about how the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. That's the story. That's the direction of the story. That's what the story is about. The story of the church is not the story of people who are oppressed and opposed. It is a story of a gospel and a savior that is always advancing no matter what comes. It is a story of resilience. The church is not a battered victim hanging on by the skin of its teeth and scheming to outsmart the world. In this story, the church is the gathering of faithful witnesses who are flexible in challenge they are patient in the face of anger. They are peaceful in the face of violence, hopeful when things seem bleak, loving when, when they are met with the worst of other people, and trusting when backed into a corner or locked into a prison cell. The book of Acts is a narrative of what God did despite everything 
to fill a people with his spirit and partner with them to bring the gospel to the whole world. That's what the story is about. It's not about a, a difficult and, and, and overrun church. It's about an overcoming church. Persecution happens in this book. But the book isn't about the persecuted church. This book is about a triumphant church filled with power, a church that had to deal with persecution because it happens, but not one that was overrun by it. So let's jump in. Acts 12. We're going to read the first five verses here. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. I have, uh, you know, and it's, it's worth whatever it is, I have a theory about political leaders, I think there are pretty much three types, and of course, I'm about to make some broad generalizations, right? So I'll take it for what it, what it is. Um, there, are, there are good leaders. There are good leaders, people who um, have both character and competence. They live according to principles. They lead effectively and are often consciously aiming to honor God and to do what is right. You know, while I don't really know the guy, I think we could look at Zelensky, the president of Ukraine right now, as a good example of a really good moral leader, a strong guy who's leading according to his principles. Know nothing about him besides, you know, what I'm reading in the news right now, that he's standing with his people and not bowing to the, to the, to, to, uh, the invading force in his country, right? Uh, but it seems like he is a fairly principled man. But I would argue that these leaders, and I, you know, maybe I'm being a little cynical, but I would say that these types of leaders, good, moral, honest uh, leaders, are few and far between in the political world. For the sake of argument, let's just say there's just no more than 5% of the leaders who are that way, right? Just, just you know, I, I, not a scientific study. <sighs> I don't know. And then there are, of course, there, there are just malevolent leaders. There are moral leaders, and there are malevolent leaders. These are people who actually have competence. They're actually extremely competent. They know exactly what they're doing, and they are totally devoid of character. In fact, they're working hard to resist God, to oppose the Lord. They do it intentionally and knowingly. Again, on the world stage, I mean, we could probably say Vladimir Putin is a malevolent person. He's invading a nation, unprovoked, trying to take it over, and killing thousands while he does it. Now, maybe you think, like, this is like... Everybody on the political stage, they're all fairly malevolent, and I think we live in a pretty cynical time, and, and politicians get a, bit of, get a pretty bad rap. But I would argue that the real number is, is probably about the same as moral leaders. There are probably many, as, as, as many moral leaders as malevolent leaders. Probably no more than 5% of the world, world's leaders are truly malevolent, truly just, just bent and dishonest people who are against God. Which leaves about 90%, again, not a scientific study, but about 90% in the third category. And the third category is just this. They're just mediocre. They're just probably mediocre leaders. These are leaders who uh, possess varying degrees of competence and varying degrees of character. They aren't so much evil people as poorly developed people. People who have not developed a sense of, of character or of, of, of what is right and what's, what's moral. And here's the thing 
And the reason why we're talking about this, we see throughout history, and we see even in this text, that the church doesn't only suffer under malevolent leaders. It can suffer at the hands of mediocre leaders just as well. Herod was a mediocre leader. He wasn't just like this terrible guy. He actually was known in the Jewish world for his reverence. He, he interceded with Caesar to have the uh, image of Caesar, Caesar removed from the temple because he was, he was a religious guy, and he thought it was a disgusting thing to have in the temple. He had it removed. He was sort of well-known and well-liked compared to at least the other Herods. Just By the way, this is one of three Herods we see uh, in scriptures. This is it's uh, Herod Agrippa, right? This is the Herod we're talking about. That's not Herod the Great, the one who killed all the male babies in Bethlehem. That's a different Herod. And it's not Herod Antipas, the one who had John the Baptist killed. Not that Herod, a very different Herod, right? So just, just in case you're like saying, well, his character would, would be indicated otherwise. This is a, a different Herod. He was just sort of a, a, a mediocre guy. He laid hands on some in the church. He, he put them in prison. He beat them publicly. He had James, the brother of John, put to death. And then he arrests Peter. And it's not because he's malevolent that he does this thing. In fact, his motives are really clear. The, the text tells us. It's not that he really cares about the church. It's not that he actually has much of an uh, opinion about it at all. But he does uh, see something. He sees that when he persecutes the church, some people like it. And so what does he do? Well, he plays it up. He plays it up for the sake of building his popularity amongst the people. He's mediocre. He doesn't have principles. He's just trying to please people. He arrests Peter. He throws him in jail with the intention of trotting him out on the Passover as a gift to the religious Jews who actually normally are a little bit against him because he's a, a vassal king of Rome. He's, he's subordinate to Rome. Herod isn't, though, he's not a malevolent guy. He's just an insecure fool. He's an insecure fool. He's more interested in playing to the crowd than in doing what is right. So why bring this up? Why bring my, my little theory about, about leadership up? Uh, the point is not to just trash political leaders, but to understand this. Politics happen. 95% of the time, politics it happens. 100% of the time, either we're under good leadership, we're under malevolent leadership, or we're under mediocre leadership in, in any country, in any place, at any time. Sometimes, as Christians, the political winds blow against us. Sometimes, as Christians, they're at our backs, they're moving us along, things are good. But the fact is that even when mediocre or malevolent politicians do what they do, the gospel can move forward. The gospel does move forward. The movement of the church, the gospel of Jesus Christ moves forward. See, Herod was kicking up a storm against the church, or so he thought. But what happened? Well, we see at the end, the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. How can this be? How can it be that despite organized and, and, and deliberate opposition in the, in the political realm that the church, a, a, a very social, very uh, political in the sense that it involves people, how is it that this movement can move forward? Time for a sports analogy. Baseball is a, is a fun game. <laughs> I'm trying to project a lot of confidence, but you can probably tell. I don't know. <laughs> uh, baseball, it's, it's a fun game. I did play it in the eighth grade. Haven't really since. Uh, it's all about the fundamentals, really. This is what, again, this is my eighth grade self speaking right here. Good fielding, good hitting, 
And a lot of great teams win because they do the fundamentals really well. They just, they just do the basic mechanics of baseball really well. They get the runners on their bases, and they field the ball effectively. They get ahead by not letting the opposing team score too much and taking every advantage that they can find to advance their own runners. I think a lot of the times, the, ch the church acts like a baseball organization that's just trying to be good on the fundamentals. We think that well, if we're going to win, and we have this idea of what winning is, and usually it involves just having power, that we have to like, beat the other team at the game that we're playing. We have to organize, and we have to get political, because we, uh, we look at the world, and we read the news, and we experience life in America at this time. We look around, and we think, all oh, the other team is so strong. You know, Herod's on first base, and Herod is a solid first baseman, and how are we going to overcome it? Like, we look at the other team, and we say, oh, they got Caesar on second base, or, or out in the outfield, they've got Jay Inslee, you know, or whoever it is, whoever it is, you know, whoever you think of as on the other team, whether it's Donald Trump or Biden or, or you know, Hillary or whoever, right? We look at the world and we get intimidated. We think they have power. We're playing against them. They're trying to get us. And so we just need to be better at baseball. And basically, we start to think that in order to win, we have to have the right guys on base. And if we don't have the right guys on base, then how are we ever going to survive? How are we ever going to move forward? And so the church ends up playing politics as a way to get our people on base so that we can score runs and win. But here's the thing about baseball. It is a really stupid game. <laughs> Listen, this is, this is, there's a real point coming. It's a stupid game because it's actually just two games in one game. It's two games in one game. First, it's the game that we described that's basically adversarial. It's about fundamentals. It's about outperforming the other team. It's about getting them, uh, stopping them from getting runs and, and taking every advantage you have to get people on base. It's either that or it's this entirely other game that has nothing to do with the first game, which is just about swinging so hard that it goes over the fence. And it doesn't matter how good the other team is. Baseball is a stupid game. <laughs> it's like Quidditch. I know pastors aren't allowed to talk about Harry Potter. I know that's against the rules, right? But Quidditch is like this game, and it's from... Harry Potter, and it's not real, and it's played, it's, you'll be fine, um, you know, but you, like, score points, to score points, and then, like, the teams, like, spend days, like, scoring points, or you can just get the golden snitch, and the game's over, and whoever got the snitch wins. It's, like, stupid. <laughs> it's just like that. Um, sorry. I just couldn't, I couldn't help but share that. <laughs> um, the thing that's stupid about baseball is that if you hit the home runs, it doesn't matter at all how good the other team's players are. They could have Superman center base, center field, right? The other team could have the flash uh, on first base. It doesn't matter. If the ball goes over the fence, it doesn't matter what's happening on the field. What the early church understood is that they could win the game by playing the right game and not by playing the wrong game. The church wins when it swings through the fences, when it just gets their eyes off the, the players in the field and actually does what we're called to do. We don't have to outplay the world. The church isn't even playing the same game as political powers. That's what the early church understood. Hey, let's keep reading. 
On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and light shone in the cell and he struck Peter's side and woke him up saying, Peter, get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands and the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he continued to follow. And he did not know um, that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, uh, which opened for, for them by themselves. And they went out and they went along on the street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angels and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all uh, that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark. And when many were gathered together and were playing, uh, where, when he knocked uh, at the door, praying, not playing, praying, let's be clear about that, that's an important point, uh, when he knocked at the door of the gate and a servant girl named Rhoda came and answered, and when she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but he, she ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so and kept saying, uh, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with uh, his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. And he left and he went to another place. And now when the day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had, found, uh, had not found him, he examined the guards in order that they be put away, uh, to, led away to execution. And then he went down to Judea, uh, from Judea to Caesarea, and he was spending time there. It's amazing, as we just kind of see the way the church behaved in the face of persecution, uh, that we see the response of the church in Jerusalem um, it's, it's not to, um, and, and hold, bear with me while I make these points, because we're going to get to a very full picture. I don't want you to be too offended too soon, right? <laughs> Appropriately defended, offended at the right time. That's what I'm aiming for. Um, the church's response isn't, let's get organized, let's protest, let's lobby. The response of the church is to gather and to pray. Peter gets put into prison. They gather and pray. They have an all-night prayer vigil at the house of Mary. They gather and pray. Now, of course, if you think that the game is won by outplaying the other team, then prayer in the face of persecution it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's actually thought we could think of that as sort of like a last-ditch effort. And a lot of times, that's how we treat prayer in terms of what's going on in our lives. The last thing we do, when we're finally so desperate, that's when we start to pray. But what the church did, or the minute that Peter gets locked up and thrown into jail, is they gather and they pray. Because if you really believe that you're playing a different kind of game, then prayer makes sense. It doesn't if you don't. 
See, the early church responded to persecution the way they did because they understood the game they were playing. The early church were believing and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they did. That was their MO. It was their, in their DNA. They were people who believed the gospel and proclaimed the gospel. That was their response to every difficulty they faced. Believe the gospel and proclaim the gospel. That was always what they did. Now, maybe you're scratching your head and you're thinking, well, don't we do the same thing? Aren't we believing and proclaiming when we gather in church? Aren't, we be- aren't I believing and proclaiming when I'm, when I'm, when I'm uh, you know, going about my life? That's a great question. And my response to you is this. Maybe. Maybe. I, I hope so. Uh, let's take a look. Let's take a look for a second at uh, Colossians 1.15. Okay, so if you've got a Bible, you can open it up. Oh, it's so small. Well, that's pretty big. You'll be all right. Um, Colossians 1.15, okay? Uh, I want us to look at what Paul says about the gospel in Colossians 1.15, okay? So I'm just going to read this section. Uh, it's like a couple verses. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all of creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is the body. He's the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of the blood of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. And yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ uh, in his physical body. And as a result, he's brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. What was the gospel that the early church went around believing and proclaiming? We're definitely familiar, at least with one part of it. We we were really good at this in the American church. That's the part that emphasizes um, the the personal reconciliation, the forgiveness of sin part, right? It's right here in Colossians 1.21. We read that section. Paul says something that's very relevant to you. It is very relevant to me, immediately so, for my personal life and my relationship with God. It says this, you were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and action. As in, before you knew God, before you had any relationship with him, you were stuck in sin separate from God because of your thoughts and your actions. And yet now, 
now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. Jesus has done something by dying on a cross to bring about reconciliation by being a sacrifice that could take away sin and reconcile you to God should you put your faith in him. And as a result, he has brought you into his presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, he took away your sin as a result of him dying, taking away sin, as you put your faith in him, you are brought into his presence. You're holy and blameless. You stand before him without a single fault. That is absolutely the heart of the gospel. It's that Jesus stands in our place. He takes away sin. He atones for the things that we've done so that we might have holiness and relationship and be right with God. This is the thing that we need to celebrate all the time because God cares about people. He cares about your personal state, your personal relationship with him right here, right now. And because he cares so much about that, he has done all the work to bring you back into a right relationship with him. It's because of Jesus' death and resurrection that we can be holy and blameless and reconciled to God. But even as we read Colossians, we have to understand that is not the, the entirety of the gospel message as Scripture presents it. That is not the entirety of it. A gospel of personal reconciliation alone is, I think, too small of a gospel. It's too small of a frame for the gospel because Paul is always telling a bigger story. The gospel of personal reconciliation, that we can be made right individually with God through the, through the uh, forgiveness of sins as we, as we come and we repent before him, that is one small part of a much bigger story. You and I are caught up in a bigger gospel, a giant gospel, one that means something, as Paul says here, for all of creation. Say I'm having a party. I'm not. Don't worry. But say you got invited to the party. Wouldn't that be so exciting? You would say, look, oh, man, this, this party, it's happening. It's, so, it's so, so great. I got invited. It's so personal now. I feel loved. I feel seen. I feel invited. How wonderful. That's one aspect of, of the gospel. But, of course, what the, the gospel is this greater thing. It's that not only is, is God having a party and you're invited, it's that God's having this giant, restoring, renewing party. He's got a plan for all of creation, not just for you, but for you and for you and for everything. The gospel is this good news that God is doing a work that matters to the whole world. It matters to all authority and all power and all spiritual anything. Anything that exists, it matters. It matters. The gospel matters. There's context to the gospel beyond the personal, and that's what we see here. Paul preaches it. He says, Jesus is first in everything. In, this is, that's part of the gospel. It's a pronouncement, an announcement of who Jesus is, how significant he is for the whole world. He's first in all things. He existed before anything was created, and he is supreme over all creation. The gospel is the pronouncement, the announcement of who God is, who Jesus is. He's made peace with everything in heaven and earth by means of, the, of Christ's blood on the cross. The gospel is a world-sized, creation-sized gospel. It is all authority in heaven and earth are being given to Jesus. The church summed up that little confession in this little three, three words that they would, we would say. They, their confession was, Jesus is Lord. 
Lord. And so that means he's, he's, he's Lord of my heart. Like he, he's the one who's saved me. He's brought me into personal salvation so that I can know and have this awesome relationship with him. But it's, it's beyond that. It's that Jesus is Lord over everything. Nero thinks he's Lord, but Jesus is Lord. The government and then everybody, they all think they're Lord, but the Christians say, no, Jesus is Lord. The gospel means this. It means that he is over everything. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the one to whom all glory and honor and power are due. This was the confession of the church. It was so much bigger than just like, Jesus has saved me and therefore I can go and do whatever. No, it's, it's a, I find myself in this giant story of Jesus' reconciling work for the whole world. And let's just be frank about it. That is a deeply political statement. It is. It has to do with the real world, where real things are happening, where there's real power at stake. It was a statement of the church's confidence that we're going to win. We win, whatever, whatever that means. Rightly understood, we're going to win. Not because they had a great king, a strong king, a strong army like Herod or Caesar, but because they had a king who had already won and who was just stacking the lineup with power. He was bringing about everything that needed to happen. It's faith in the gospel. It's by faith in the gospel that the church wins. The early church understood that. Faith was being expressed in a confident action, a calmness, a confidence that the church is actually going to win, going to be victorious, that the word of the Lord is going to go move forward despite all the crazy political stuff going on in the world. They didn't have to win by taking over political power or by playing some small ball game. The church believed that Jesus had already has all the power. And so they just act accordingly. And in that context, prayer makes a lot more sense. If you're just saying, Lord, we get it. Like, you are the one who has all authority, and so we just come before you and we can pray. And that is a wise and intelligent way to approach difficulty if it's true that Jesus is Lord. And so they just come before the one who has all authority. And so when Peter's locked in prison between two soldiers, he's suddenly surrounded by light. He has his shackles fall off and the door is open and he goes out in front and, and then he suddenly comes to, kind of like wakes up, feels like it was a dream, but realizes it wasn't a dream. And he says, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Peter is simply marveling at how God has acted so consistently with his power and with his ability and with this world-sized gospel, he sent forth his angels to rescue his church. And so he believes that, and then he proclaims that. We have to understand the game that we're playing. If we are people who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we have to be people who are growing at least, growing in the confidence of his power and ability to make manifest like his, his authority in the real world. Believing what he's done. That's the work of faith. And honestly, sometimes it is a work. Sometimes when I look out at the world that we live in today, it is work to say, oh, I am so sure that God's will is going to be done and that he is going to do rightly and justly. This was a hard week to do that, right? I, mean, I, I, I can be a little bit of a news junkie, and there's a lot going on. 
but I have to, in those times, just, just remind myself of what I, what I know to be true. Though, you know, people have nuclear weapons, and though wars are happening, and though uh, everything seems kind of crazy, both uh, abroad and at home, I have to remind myself of what I know is true, and that's that the gospel tells me this, that Jesus is Lord. His power is perfect. The church, the church really leaned into that reality, in a very real way. I mean, not, not in a way that wasn't... Um, demanding, let's just say, right? Faith can be demanding of us sometimes because it demands that we actually put our stock in, our action in, our behavior in, and our thinking in what we know to be true, even though at times that can be uh, very stressful. But let's be, be clear about one other thing. The church was also very political in the sense that they were proclaiming the gospel. They had a public witness that they were very careful to be on about, right? Now, th th that just needs to be, be clear, because in, in the face of powerful people, the church was not shy to proclaim the greater power and authority and righteousness of Jesus Christ. In that respect, like, I mean, if that's, that's like, there, there are ways in which the gospel calls us to be, I think, less political in that we're not concerned with grasping for power, but there are ways definitively where as Christians, we have to be political in that we have to speak what's true and we have to proclaim the true authority of Jesus over all things. Paul talks about this in, in 2 Corinthians 10. He says this, Though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is where the church actually has to be political, to whatever degree that is just inevitable, if we're going to do this thing, we're going to be perceived as being a little political. We're going to be perceived as people who, when, when, when powerful people abuse their power, we actually come back and we say, actually, no, you don't have the right to do that. You don't have the right to do those things. We're not warring according to the flesh. We're not trying to grasp power for ourselves. We're not about getting, getting power for our team and our, for our tribe, but we must speak to the places where culture is deliberately raised up against the knowledge of God, where they are suppressing and, and, and against what is true and what we, we, we know to be true. That's why we study the Bible, by the way, so that we can know the things that the Lord says. Because we must understand the word if we're going to be people who, uh, uh, who understand God and know what his mind is like, right? And who, and who can do this work of uh, destroying speculations and lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. Taking thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. So, I mean, what, practically, what does this look like? It means that Christians are people who, when they see corruption, call it out. Christians are people who, when they see abuse and violence and injustice, we call it out. We're, we're, we're reminding people, we're reminding the powers of this world that, in fact, their power is just like they're stewards of that power. 
that all power and authority is actually, it belongs to Jesus because Jesus is Lord. He's been the one who's proclaimed that all the world is mine and it is being reconciled to me and he's doing a thing. And he is inviting people, just like you and me, to be a part of it. And he's even inviting a power to be a part of it, to subordinate itself, in a sense, under the authority of Jesus. I'm not talking about establishing a Christian government or whatever. I'm saying a government that values the things that Jesus values. It values people, values love, values peace, values justice, values truth. We're called to be people who are calling the government to account in those things. In that respect, Christians are political. Proverbs 6 uh, says this, 6, 16 and 19 says this. There are six things the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. It's, it's funny these are the things that God hates, but it's, it's really like kind of like a political playbook for 2022. <laughs> like These are the things that you want to do to get ahead in politics these days. Spread strife, run into evil, bear false witness, utter lies, devise some wicked plans, have lying tongues, shed innocent blood. What we're saying, what I'm saying is this, is that God hates these things. He's made it super clear that he hates these things. Jesus is, does not tolerate these sorts of things. And so people who want to honor the Lord and do the, the, the right kind of uh, political engagement, that is gospel believing and gospel proclaiming, are going to be people who are pointing the world to these things and showing, saying, hey, look, God hates these things and we shouldn't have them in our society. We shouldn't tolerate them. And we certainly shouldn't just turn a blind eye when they happen in our tribe and in our people. There's kind of uh, a lot of pushback right now against the church, right, and culture, and, you know, it happens and whatever. Some of it is illegitimate, but some of it really is a, a legitimate pushback against, um, really, the church that has been too unconcerned with abuses of power, uh, People who, who, who take their power and they, they do evil things with it. That just shouldn't be in the church. And we as Christians should be people who are just on guard against these things. Ultimately, what we have to remember is this. Any power that I have, any power that the church has, any power that any authority has is really just power that is subordinate to Jesus. It's power that they have as a stewardship, and it will be brought to account how it was used. That's what we proclaim when we proclaim the gospel. It's this, whoever has power, we need to remind these people, look, isn't it great that God has given you uh, something to work with, given you power, given you influence? Um, but understand this, it's not your power, and one day you'll be held accountable for how you use it. That's a proclaiming the gospel in, in the political realm. It's also just, by the way, something that I need to remind myself of with how I'm using my own influence all the time. Hey, let's, let's, let's finish out this, uh, this little section because it, it starts to tie up here pretty well. 
Herod, so back, back to Herod, he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord they came to him. And having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. And on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, the voice of God and not of man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. That is vivid. <laughs> the worms came first? <laughs> I, think, I think not, sorry. Uh, but the word of the Lord continued uh, to grow and be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and, uh, and they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Hey, the, the worship team is going to come up here as we close out here. Uh, but the narrative in Acts ties up the loose ends of the Herod story right here. And the, 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 the ends tie up uh, in a pretty simple way. Herod dies, but the word of the Lord just keeps going. This guy who thought he could just use his power for whatever ends he wanted without honoring the Lord in any way whatsoever, um, he has... A day of judgment, right? A day of judgment uh, where uh, he ends up with the worms. I don't, like, uh, I think it's tempting to say, yeah, Herod got what he deserved. But this is a tragedy. When stuff like this happens, like, it's tragic. Because Herod had chance after chance, right? I mean, he was, he was ruling over the church, and the church was faithfully proclaiming the gospel. He, they were speaking out to, to powerful people like Herod, uh, explaining that they, he didn't have the right to abuse his power the way that, that he did. And yet this guy just hardened his heart over and over and over again. This is a tragedy. It's a tragedy uh, that people harden their heart to the reconciling work of the Lord. But more tragic still would be if the church hadn't done their part in being faithful to explain to Herod and, and to the powers that be what God was up to. See, we have this message. It, 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 a part of that message is, is like that, um, that refrain that we read throughout Scripture is that um, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, that the Lord is going to be the one who sets things right and ultimately does the work of justice, right? Uh, part of that message is that, is that, is that the, the God has all the power in the world, and any power that we think we have, we actually just think we have it. It's, it's delusional to think think it's ours, that we're called to be stewards of it, right? But the church is called and has to continue to be the sorts of groups of people who are just reminding powerful people that there is going to be an account one day for the sake of mercy. See, God, God, hasn't, God doesn't like take power because he wants to destroy people. God has, has put himself, Jesus has come on, taken on all flesh and like overcome all things in the world so that he could draw all people to himself, forgive, restore, reconcile. God isn't about wanting to punish people. 
God is about wanting to invite them in. And so, man, we have to be careful in the way that we represent and live in that story. We have to be people who speak that message of reconciliation out, not just to our friends, our loved ones, people we know, but even to powerful people. Invite them into this big story that God has. We need to be faithful to do that. So let's, uh, let's pray and we're gonna, yeah, we got time. Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you're, you're true and you're awesome. Lord, I thank you for your character and who you are, who you say you are. God, you're gracious, you're kind, you're merciful, Lord. But it's not you like you're indifferent, Lord. You're not indifferent to the, the terrible things that happen in this world. Lord, you are moving powerfully and you're calling us to be the sorts of people who, who call out to you, cry out to you, who understand that you're the one who has the authority, Lord. And when we ask you, Lord, to use it on the behalf of the, 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 the poor, the powerless, the hurt, the broken, the oppressed, Lord, we ask you to, to reach out to people who are suffering. Lord, we pray even right now, Lord, I, I want to just pray for the people of Ukraine who are being invaded this morning by, by a foreign army, Lord, led by a, a malevolent dictator. Lord, we pray that you would bring an end to this war quickly, Lord, that you'd save those who are the victims of it, Lord, and that you would remove this dictator. We pray people in, in the nation of Russia would stand up against him, oppose these things, Lord. We ask, Lord, that the, the Christians in those countries would, would stand up and call their leaders to account, God. Lord, would we pray? We want to pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. Let us be people who fight for that, who fight for that result, Lord, who fight for and seek your glory in all things, Lord, who, who are playing the right game, Lord. Lord, teach us to have the game that we play by faith and by hope and by persistent prayer, by being good, faithful witnesses to what is true, Lord, that you are the one who holds all things in your hands. Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.